Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. When Amber Heard faced off with Johnny Depp in the UK libel trial, there was an Australian barrister called Jen Robinson by her side. The online attacks and trolling that Amber experienced and that I experienced myself is like nothing I've ever experienced before. The only way to describe it is vile. So in today's briefing, Jen Robinson joins us with a fellow barrister to talk about the perverse twist of the Me Too movement and why the law is stopping women from speaking out. And as part of that conversation, Jen will open up on what it was like to work on the Heard v Depp libel case in the UK. First, here are today's big headlines with Katrina Blowers and Antoinette Latouf. It's Tuesday, the 18th of October. Flood victims are cleaning up in parts of Victoria as the state braces for another deluge this week. There are now concerns of looting in the Melbourne suburb of Maribyrnong with $15,000 worth of items stolen from just one home. That is so heartless. So 140 defence personnel are still in northern Victoria at Echuca and Shepparton helping with evacuations and sandbagging. And conditions there have mostly stabilised, but another flood peak is expected tomorrow. A bit further south in Rochester, around 85% of properties there have been flooded. So these are areas that some of them have gone under before, some of them haven't. But, you know, people, and I feel like we're saying this about weather events all the time now, but it Mm. it is definitely a once in a generation event. So the Victorian Premier has committed $165 million to fixing roads following the floods. The Federal Treasurer has also flagged that his budget could now change next week to take into account the cleanup. And yes, why people are struggling to look after their homes and are going to be left, you know, with enormous mess and bill following the floods. There is a flow on effect for the rest of the country because the floods could also heighten our cost of living crisis because dairy products, meat, fruit and veggies, they could all see price hikes due to waterlogged land in Victoria and southern New South Wales. The criminal trial of the man accused of sexually assaulting former parliamentary staffer Brittany Higgins is continuing today. The prosecution wrapped up their side of things late yesterday. Both Senators Michaelia Cash and Linda Reynolds giving evidence. Michaelia Cash telling the ACT Supreme Court she didn't know Higgins had allegedly been sexually assaulted until two years later. She also said Higgins told her about it during a phone conversation in February last year. So this all comes after Brittany Higgins told the court she'd informed the senator about the alleged incident several times prior to that. Later on, Senator Linda Reynolds took the stand. It was in her office where the incident is alleged to have happened. It was revealed Linda Reynolds actually asked to see transcripts of Brittany Higgins' evidence, Senator Reynolds telling the court she didn't realise that wasn't appropriate. And she also admitted her partner physically attended the trial while Higgins was giving evidence, but said she never asked him to tell her what was said in court. Former Liberal staffer Bruce Lehrman has pleaded not guilty to the alleged sexual assault of his then-colleague Brittany Higgins at Parliament House in 2019. Australia has quietly dropped recognition of West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, reversing a controversial endorsement by Scott Morrison in 2018. This is quite huge news, Antoinette. 
It is, Katrina, because back then, Australia became one of only a few countries to recognise West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And that came after a decision by the Trump administration to actually relocate the US embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. The Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has retained the bipartisan position that Australia is committed to a two-state solution in which Israel and a future Palestinian state coexist in peace and security within internationally recognised borders, quote unquote. But what do you think this really means, Antoinette? Well, it means a couple of things. It means that Labor's doing what it promised. Um, the Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong had said in 2018 that Labor does not support unilateral recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and that the government, um, if elected, would reverse this decision. But interestingly, that language remained on the DFAT website um, as recently as last week. So what does it all mean and why does it matter? Well, Katrina, most countries believe an Israeli capital in West Jerusalem and a Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem would be the logical result of a two-state solution. So the Trump uh, administration and the Morrison government just declaring it all a capital for Israel was essentially turning its back on the prospect of a two-state mm. solution. So this is, you know, it is a significant move. I mean, it doesn't herald an end to decades-long conflict, but at least shows that Australia joins many countries around the world in still hoping that they can reach a two-state solution. And such an interesting development and so interesting too that it was so quietly done. And there are calls for Ned Brockman to become Australian of the Year. Maybe that's a bit too much, but what an effort. Uh, this sparky, he completed an almost 4,000 kilometre run from Perth to Bondi in just 47 days. So the 23-year-old received a hero's welcome in Sydney with thousands cheering him on. This is so amazing. There was absolutely no one out in the nullarbor uh, when I was quite injured and, yeah, this is just mind-blowing. So he left Cottesloe Beach in WA on the 1st of September and he was aiming to run about 100 kilometres a day, I think. What's really captivated people with mm. his journey is that not only did he face absolutely shocking weather, broken bones and um, extreme fatigue, the injuries happened super early on, as he mentioned. So it, it was kind of one of those against all odds efforts. It's pretty significant. Um Australians obviously loved him. He did raise an enormous amount of money, uh, more than $1.3 million for a homelessness charity. I don't know, Katrina, I don't know if I'm being a little bit sceptical or perhaps I'm secretly jealous because I can't run more than 100 <laughs> metres. Like a lo lots of people do really crazy things to their bodies for charities. Like they yeah. climb all sorts of mountains, they they cycle around Europe. I'm just wondering, like, what is it um, about Ned that caught the national imagination? Because I'm, I'm imagining other people have been like, well, I... I raised $3 million and I ran the country twice. Look, um, you're absolutely you right. You're absolutely right. And I think because we see people, you know, giving us press releases all the time trying to publicise their the cause, it, it does kind of make you wonder what makes someone stand out and what doesn't, what makes someone newsworthy and what doesn't. Full disclaimer, my friend did the PR for him. I think with Ned Brockman... She did a great job. <laughs> 
She absolutely did. You know, he has the blonde mullet. He's a sparky. He's super relatable to all different categories and he's he's great media talent. So I absolutely agree. There are many other people other than Ned doing amazing things, but you've got to hand it to this guy. He, he did an incredible job and especially for raising awareness for his particular homelessness charity. Yeah, he absolutely did. All right. Thanks, Antoinette. Coming up, we are going to be joined by Tom Tilley, who's chatting with Jen Robinson and Kana Yoshida. You are going to love this interview. The perverse twist of Me Too. So the wave of abuse stories has come with a wave of defamation lawsuits. And the two female barristers you're about to meet say that this has meant the law has silenced women, which is exactly the opposite of what Me Too was supposed to achieve. Now, these two barristers, Jen Robinson and Kena Yoshida, have written a book called How Many More Women? And it details the way the law and the media has held back justice for sexual assault victims. It pieces together a very broad and complex problem and makes a really strong case for change. It comes out today. Now, a quick bit of background on these two barristers. So Jen Robinson is an Australian who went to the UK as a Rhodes Scholar. She became a barrister and really hit the limelight for representing Julian Assange and then Amber Heard. She also worked alongside Amal Clooney. She also works with Kina Yoshida, an Irish-Japanese barrister who works at the same chambers in London. Jen, Kina, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. Morning, Tom. Thanks for having us. Hello, So this is a really ambitious book. Um, You're looking at all these problems with the legal system from the civil to the criminal right around the world. Uh, You even start with talking about all the redactions and legal restrictions on even talking about the problems with the legal system. So tell us, what do you want to achieve with this book? One of the things that was frustrating us seeing this play out in our own practice, and many of these cases you would never see in the public domain. So our aim really was to highlight the problem to, we want to show more women than we could ever see in our chambers uh, the risk, the legal risks that, that we still face when we speak about our experience of gender-based violence. So I think there's a bit of a perception post Me Too that it's all, you know, now that the cultural, um, I think, reticence to speak out about our experiences has been broken, we're seeing this backlash within the law. Mm. And we want to make sure that women and girls and their friends and allies understand the risks and the difficulties that women face. And Kena, tell us about your working relationship with Jen and... I guess, what you came into this book wanting to do. We start the book um, in the prologue talking about a case called Stalker and Stalker. Mm. And this was a, a case that went the whole way up to the Supreme Court in the uh, United Kingdom, England and Wales. And Jen and I, we had applied to intervene in that Supreme Court case because we believed that there were really important arguments to make about Nicola Stalker's free speech rights. Mm. And the Supreme Court declined to hear us about it. And so really this book came from us working on that case uh, together and we felt it was a real missed opportunity for the court to understand that these issues in defamation uh, have a broader impact on women and survivors in society. And this was a case whereby there was an accepted incident whereby Mr. Stalker had grabbed Mrs. Stalker around the neck mm. and the judge had said, well, actually his intention wasn't to, to kill, it was to silence her. And therefore, she was still found uh, liable in defamation to him. 
So the definition of strangulation in the law, at least previously, was an intent to kill, to, mm. to grab someone around the throat with the intent to kill. And, of course, she said he tried to strangle me. She survived. Mm. She lived. That was her problem. Yeah. Uh, and the judge reached a conclusion that was far more positive towards him than anyone had put forward. That case shows both the problems with laws, which are defined so far beyond what women's lived experience of violence is, but also the way in which um, judges who don't have any lived experience of what women go through, we can see gender bias play out in the court, and that's a really good example of it. So let's talk about the whole civil space. So you start the book by pointing out this sort of, quote, perverse twist of the Me Too movement, which was supposed to be about solidarity for women speaking out, but has actually led to some brutal public shutdowns through defamation lawsuits. So the successful Jeffrey Rush case is the most high profile example here. Then of course, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard in the UK, which you worked on. Mm. So what have you observed in the way defamation and libel laws have been used in the last five years in the wake of Me Too? Well, as the New York Times reports, there's been a a huge number of defamation cases in the wake of Me Too. So for every story you see in the media, so many are silenced and shut down. Mm. And that's because of the risk of defamation suits. They are incredibly expensive to defend. And in the UK and here in Australia, the burden of proof rests on the publisher, which makes it a lot easier for a man who brings that case. And one of our concerns and one of the things we learnt through the context of our interviews, speaking to women survivors, journalists all over the world, is that the same kinds of myths and tropes about violence towards women are being rolled out in court cases for, to, to create really unjust outcomes. I consider one of those unjust outcomes the outcome in the Depp trial in the United States because, mm. of course, we won the case in the United Kingdom yeah. before an expert and experienced judge where the burden of proof was on the newspaper, not on Depp, and a several hundred-page judgment goes into extreme detail of the evidence, the contemporaneous evidence, the corroborative evidence that supported Amber's account. And for a jury to find the opposite with a more difficult standard of proof is, in my opinion, absurd. How many more women will be silenced, Mm. as we say in the book, because they saw what happened to Amber Heard? So what was it like working on that case? You were photographed standing beside her in solidarity. Your work in court was also in full public view. How much trolling did you get and what was that like for you and did that change the way you handled your work in that case? The online attacks and trolling that Amber experienced and that I experienced myself is like nothing I've ever experienced before. Mm. The only way to describe it is vile Mm. and it really made me question how far we've come as a society that women who speak out and me as a woman, as a lawyer doing my job job. would be attacked, death threats, rape threats, threats towards you know, Amber for her family. And again, this is just all the ways in which women are told to stay silent and stay out of the public domain. I think we have to stand up and say that it's unacceptable. What are the solutions when it comes to defamation? Obviously, the point of these laws is to protect people from having their reputations unfairly demolished. Are there any simple changes around the burden of proof or the way we allow the media to report on the trials? Are there any ways we could fix these laws? I think with law, nothing is ever simple, you know, otherwise it, mm. it, it would have been done. But <laughs> I yeah. think some of the things we explore in the book are solutions that people have come up with. So one of the really interesting uh, things that's happening is that when someone uh, sues a woman 
because she's made an allegation of gender-based violence, uh, she's countersuing and saying, actually, you're calling me a liar, so I'm suing you in defamation for calling me a liar. Mm. And that's been quite successful in different parts of the world. Shiori Ito did it in Japan, for example. And then she has been then suing people who have been tweeting or even liking tweets about her being a liar. So that's one recourse to the law um, that uh, women have been using, but you've got to have money to do it. That's right. It's so tricky. You need the resources and you need to be prepared to not just go through one trial, but two. Yeah, that's right. Unless they can bring them together in one suit. Mm. Many of the women we spoke to were saying, it's just going to leave me bankrupt. I can't do it. Mm. And that's where people end up being silenced. And I think that's where we get to is, what does your free speech mean if you can't afford to defend it? Mm. So I think the key... When free speech is too expensive. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think the key point is, I think, that we make in the book is that women's speech about violence against women is in the public interest. We can't grapple with the problem. One in three women suffers gender-based violence in their lifetime. Mm. We can't grapple with the problem if we don't know what it is and what's happening. And so we, the starting point is being able to talk about it. And that's why we think it's so important that we recognise in our law that this speech is in the public interest and it ought to be protected. Women should not be facing hundreds of thousands of pounds or even million-dollar judgments for speaking out about their experience of abuse. So you're talking about putting together a fund or, you know, for the government supporting some of these women to defend themselves from these defamation suits? I think that would be one useful solution, is to find ways that these cases can be better funded. What about defamation defences? Do you think we need to change the laws so that there are different ways of defending yourself from these suits? One of the things we talk about a lot in the book is the public interest defence, which has just Mm. been introduced here in Australia in the Uniform Defamation Laws. Um, It's existed in the UK for for some years now. Um, But we haven't seen it used as much as we would like to see it used and pleaded in the way that we argue it ought to be pleaded in these cases. In the UK, we've seen a raft of cases go to the Supreme Court on particularly involving domestic violence, domestic and sexual Mm. violence. And we say that we should be utilising that defence better and emphasising to the court that this is a matter of public interest. Women being able to speak out about their experience is a matter of public interest if we are to end violence against women. Mm. And it's an important societal good. Okay, so let's talk about the criminal sphere, which also has lots of problems. We've mostly been talking about defamation, which is a civil proceeding. It's harrowing sometimes to watch these rape trials go through court and see the impact on the victims having to be cross-examined and tell their story in, in court and then see the way that those cross-examinations are then reported in the media. What are the things that really drew your attention in the criminal sphere, the big problems, the reasons women are silenced from going forward with those sort of charges? There's so many issues. I mean, you just need to look online and look at the hashtag why I didn't report to see why women Mm. don't go to the police. The women we interviewed and the research that we looked at in writing this book showed that I mean, in the UK, only 1% of cases ever reported to the police ever end up going to a prosecution. And you see the Victims Commissioner talk about the decriminalisation of rape because prosecutions, the number of prosecutions is so low. Women talk about being re-traumatised by dealing with the police and prosecutors because of the victim-blaming attitudes within the police um, and the traumatisation of having to go through a trial. And you need only look to the media coverage of high-profile trials here in Australia at the moment and elsewhere to see the way that women are treated. It's such a complex web, isn't it, between the media and the law when it comes to sexual assault. And I think that's the power of this book is that you're able to break apart all the little problems in the way they build to become this massive problem in a way that we can't with day-to-day media reporting. So from gender bias in the legal profession right through to the way the media reports on sexual assault cases, 
How do we bring about a massive change here that requires focus in so many different areas? Well, I think the beginning is to talk about it. And that's why we felt so strongly about writing this book and wanting to show a global picture, not look at just individual cases, but look at how this is operating across the board about women's lived experience of the law to highlight the problem so that we can even start to have a conversation about it. I don't think there are simple, straightforward solutions, Mm. but we have to understand the problem to be able to start to grapple with it. And that's what we try to do with the book. So you start off by talking about the perverse twist of the Me Too movement. We're sort of four or five years on from that. What do you think it has achieved? Like you talk about the cultural changes, which has then essentially highlighted the problems with the legal system. So are we just at the stage of only seeing these problems properly in the legal system or have we moved beyond that? Have we achieved much more than that yet? No, I think we haven't achieved much more than that. And I think, you know, the importance of Me Too was saying people should be able to come forward and Tarana Burke said they should be believed, which means we're not going to believe every allegation but that these allegations should be taken seriously. And what's this whole issue like for you guys on a personal level, working in this field, seeing this stuff on a day-to-day basis, trying to make change, lobbying in a very nuanced argument with this book? How do you feel about your own profession? How do, what's it like working in it when you see all these problems? It's incredibly frustrating when you see a legal team roll out these old tropes and myths in their arguments in a court. I think there needs to be more education amongst the legal profession about violence against women. And I think our legal system can do a lot better, both in the way that we argue cases and in the way that they're decided. And that's the point of the book. So when you're being asked questions, say, in the middle of an Amber Heard trial, you can make some of these arguments, but it's very different than piecing it together into the broader picture because the sound bites are so hard for the public to digest, right? Well, and it's not always particularly well reported. So if in the, in the United Kingdom, for example, in, in the Depp case against the Sun newspapers, uh, the defence team who we worked with and supported actually pulled apart all of these tropes in court saying right. that, you know, we are long past the days when a woman's evidence needs to be corroborated by anything else. Her evidence enough is enough. And pointing out the outdated and facile arguments that have been put by Depp's team in court, picking apart the way that they ran tropes, like she's not a real victim because she could have left at any time. She's not a real victim because, you know, she allegedly had an affair, which is not true. She drove him to drink. All of these awful arguments, which made it sound like you're running a case of justification rather than one that it didn't Mm. happen. All matters which are irrelevant to the point of whether he did in fact hit her. And so I think it's really important that lawyers push back against that in court. And we certainly did in that case and it worked. And so I think that it's really important that we have these conversations and that lawyers and judges are informed about women's experiences of violence so that we can have a more just legal system. That was Jen Robinson and Kano Yoshida talking about their book, How Many More Women, which you can buy from today. So that is it from us for today's briefing. Thank you so much for joining us. Tomorrow, Alex Jones, is he actually going to cough up over a billion dollars to the Sandy Hook victims? Listener.